President and CEO of the Federal Reserve of the Bank of St. Louis, James Bullard. President and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Pat Harker. And yet we're hundreds of basis points away from our target. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside my co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends each and every week on SiriusXM's Wharton Business Radio Channel 111. Enjoy this week's show. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host, Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. I should note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're coming to you live today from the New York City Marriott Marquis. Uh, it is the site of the 2017 conference for the Wharton School's Jacob Levy Equity Management Center for Quantitative Financial Research. Uh, we previewed the show last week with Chris Gakesy, who's the academic. I'm an academic director of the Jacobs Levy Center here, uh, and we have two great guests coming to us from here, Wharton Associate Professor Finance, Nick Rusinoff, who was just on our show uh, just a few weeks ago. Nick, thanks for coming back on the program. To, my pl- to, to my, get my this pleasure. Session. Thank you. And we've got Professor Siegel joining us for the hour. Richard Roll is going to be coming on in the second half of the show to talk about uh, this year's winner of the Jacob Levy Prize for the late Stephen Ross on his contributions to the academic profession and the literature. This whole conference here is dedicated to a lot of Stephen Ross's research on the APT, the arbitrage pricing theory. Um, but before we get into the sort of deep discussion on the conference and the macro factors, Professor Siegel, we could maybe just turn to you for some quick comments on the markets. Um, Professor. Yeah, lots have been as we're speaking. Um, you know, the Dow is in record territory. The S and P and is just about there. I mean, it's been a really, uh, it's been a really good week. Um, and you say, well, why? You know, why? Why has it? There's been not much on earnings reports. Um, I, I think I, I think a couple of things. I think I think there's there's a feeling of the deal in the year. You know. This, the, the question of the immigrants, the DACA, the Dreamers Act, um, that Trump is making a deal, I think that that has revived the hopes that Trump can make a deal on the tax side. Um, he seems to be you know, working the, the politics a little bit more, and I think that the market uh, you know, basically uh, likes, uh, likes that. Um, uh, actually, today we we had some very mixed news. I mean, at best, I mean, retail sales was was not a good report. Industrial production was not a good report. But the problem is that all these reports are are polluted by the the hurricanes. How much is the decline in industrial production and and retail sales due to the uh, Harvey and Irma? And how much is really underlying the economy now? On retail sales. The government didn't even say we had had an estimate. It said it couldn't even get an estimate of how much the, the poor data there meant to that. When industrial production came out, they said that they thought that a good part of the decline was because of, of uh, the hurricane. So uh, we're getting some mixed data. Uh, Macro Advisors, I think, actually has the third quarter down now uh, in terms of growth, down to one in three quarters. Um, before the hurricane, they were up to three. So, I mean, that's a that's a that's a big drop. Now, we know that this decline, which might extend certainly into the 
fourth quarter, certainly the first half of the fourth quarter, could produce a big boost next year as all the rebuilding takes place and gets added into GDP. But at this point, we're getting a lot of clouded real data. And this is going to make the Fed very cautious, because what do we have coming up next week? We have um, on Wednesday the quarterly meeting of the Fed. Um, No rate hike is expected. They are expected to announce the decline of their balance sheet, uh, uh, the reversal of quantitative easing. Um, And we're also going to get their projections on the uh, Fed funds rate. Um, right now, there are the, the median target of the uh, FOMC is for one more rate hike, and almost everyone believes if that's going to happen, it's going to be in December. The market has a doubts about whether that's going to happen. Um, we're going to see whether it moves um, from the uh, June, which is the last reading we got, through September, whether this uncertainty about uh, what's going on in the real economy, whether that changes uh, that increase or not, but I, I really think um, the, the the tax, the possibility of a tax deal, is uh, is is one of the things I think is um, driving um, the market forward this week. Yeah, it is interesting to see him, Trump going towards the Democratic side, trying to do some more deals. We saw that. Maybe we're seeing that on the immigration side. We saw that on the debt ceiling issue. Um, interesting to yeah. see him pivot there. Yeah. The 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 interesting thing is that. Trump has a hammer on the uh, the uh, immigrant issue, and that is if uh, you know if this goes to the courts, what Obama did was you know you know basically make them permanent residents or citizens. Uh, the courts will probably say you cannot do this unilaterally. In fact, Obama for years said I can't do it, and then he did it. So um, the, the Trump has that hammer over the Democrats. Listen, you know I'll let this go through the courts, and I'm going to win it. So there really could be a deal. Now, the interesting thing is, is there a similar hammer on the tax cut side? And the answer, I can't see it, you know. Uh, I mean, what is he going to give away? It's nothing like the courts are pending anything that he really has a hammer. Of course, he could say, listen, if you don't want to join with me on, on some of these things, I'll go it alone, uh, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, I know I'll only have a 10-year window. I won't be able to do it. Uh, through reconciliation and won't be able to get it permanent, but 10 years is good enough, and we'll, we'll just do this. So there's a little bit of maneuver space over there, but certainly not as much as I think he has uh, with his immigrant issue because of um, the, the court standing. So it's going to be fascinating to see if, he, if this pivot is, is going to last and whether he can turn this into some real legislation or not. Now, Nick, one of your uh, specialties is currencies. This has been a, one of the big years uh, for currency movements. Generally, we've had a very weak dollar this year. Today, sort of interesting reactions in some currency markets. You have the pound, which is sort of soaring in some ways. You've had strong inflation numbers out of out of the UK. It's about 1.3%. The UK markets aren't liking it. They're down 1% on sort of the strong pound. Um, you've got the yen is actually up today, about 50 basis points. The euro's up 18. Gold's down 50 basis points. You have some interest. It's not a universal dollar move. You have things like the pound moving. You have um, pound moving stronger, the yen moving weaker, and on top of sort of the North Korea firing a, a missile over, over Japan again. Um, anything, any commentary on just what you've seen in the dollar this year and, and any of the sort of divergences today from some of these standard just one-off, you know, same dollar story the whole, all across the board? 
Uh, sure. Well, clearly the dollar movements have been kind of dominated by the expectations of uh, first of monetary policy tightening, right, and potentially fiscal expansion and things like that, and then those kind of hopes or expectations being destroyed and seeing weak inflation numbers and Fed not really ramping up rate hikes and, and of course, you know, dollar weakening is not uh, not a surprise as a result of that. And uh, kind of more more broadly, whatever is happening with the uh, with the pound, as you mentioned, and the, the pound is up, but uh, but the UK market is uh, is down. Well, that's what oftentimes happens. In fact, uh, uh, stronger currency does not necessarily mean uh, a stronger economy. In fact, it hurts uh, uh, British uh, British producers, and uh, the compounding the fears that uh, after Brexit they're going to be facing much stiffer uh, foreign competition because they're no longer protected by in a single market. Um, from it uh, by by the lack of kind of trade barriers, and they're going to be facing much much stiffer trade barriers trading with the with the EU, and that of course is their biggest uh, biggest export market. Uh, and uh, well, with the yen also, well, the yen uh, yen is a currency that is often seen as a kind of safe haven uh, that that tends to rise on uh, kind of uncertainty, but uh, that may mean, may not be happening now. It's kind of hard to hard to tell the uncertainty. Well, in part because this is a kind of uncertainty that uh, could sub could really threaten Japan as a as a country and its, uh, its survival. Yes, after the Fukushima uh, earthquake, we did see yen going up, and some people thought that was kind of strange. Well, yeah. uh, you know, when you have a big chunk of capital being destroyed in in a country, typically an exchange rate goes up because that's kind of the, the marginal value of of capital there there rises in sort of a econ uh, lingo speak and, and kind of money flows to the country to replenish it but uh, here the situation is different uh, look if there's a nuclear war in, in that region that you know I, japan has bigger problems than than destruction of capital you know so i don't that, think that, we, we should uh you know when we're talking about currencies um i don't think we should ignore the cryptocurrency particularly today yeah. Uh, with the Bitcoin, uh, I now see it uh, trading over 3,600. This morning it was under 3,000, which means in a matter of a few hours it had risen 20%. One should realize it was just a, uh, a couple weeks ago it was over 5,000, which means from two weeks ago to this morning it dropped more than 40%. That's considered major bear market, by the way, for any mm -hmm asset over 40 percent uh, you know usually you know you get 20 percent is considered the standard bear market so we have unbelievable gyrations in bitcoin and discussion everywhere i'm not a great fan of cryptocurrencies and i don't want to get off on to that tangent but uh, i'm just saying that the hottest trading going on today sure. is probably uh is, is in a cryptocurrency rather than a r real currency. Nick, I don't know if you have any opinions about that. I don't have deep insights into cryptocurrencies, but all I know is that there has been tremendous uh, interest in cryptocurrencies. And outside of Bitcoin, lots of people are setting up their own cryptocurrencies. And there's these companies that are holding ICOs or basically cryptocurrency analogs of uh, initial public offerings because they're basically signing up investors to 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 to, to sell uh, pre-set up uh, coins for whatever their 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 specific I mean uh, since, you know I mean yeah since everyone sees the originators of crypto and those that held uh, you know bitcoin from the beginning are now you know 
multi millionaires if they held any any size. Everyone says, "Well, I'll start my own." There's nothing backing these. If I can start and get some publicity, hey, you know, maybe someone will buy mine, right? That's right, and that always sounds like a recipe for, for that, a disaster. That sounds like a bubble. Yeah. <laughs> you have you have China shutting down the trading on a lot of these, which is one of the things that started the bear market uh, this week, the last few weeks. And then you had Jamie Dimon came out and say these things yeah. are a fraud. Anybody who's any of my J.P. Morgan traders who are trading it should be fired. Um, and you have the other people saying on the other side. So what price did Dimon buy these things at after they <laughs> fell? Um, sort of sarcastic t- comment. Yeah, there, and people but. say what backs the Bitcoin, and then other people yell back, yeah, what backs the dollar? Yeah. Um, uh, and. Um, uh, but I, I, you know, we, we you know, that, that there's, we could have a whole session on. We've got to get Pat Harker the from the Philly Fed back yeah, on the show, on, as on, I think, you know, his expertise in operations, information management and banking feels to me like he's going to be the bank, the central banking expert on the technology side of it. So we got to get Pat Harker back on the show. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Nick, I want to ask you, you, you know, because part of, you know, the, 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 you know, meeting today is certainly honoring Steve Ross, and um, you know I remember him so well when I came to Wharton in 1976. I mean, he was just like a, a beaming star, and so productive and so original. Um, and um, you were a discussant of a paper that has used some of the techniques that. Um, that uh, Steve actually had developed um, with others, Richard Roll and others. We're going to have the second half of the program. Do you want to give us just a, a brief summary, and uh, more in layman's language, because I know there's an awful lot of technical stuff that goes with, you know, arbitrage pricing and all the rest. But if, could you give us a kind of a flavor of what 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 your the paper you discussed and how it, its roots go back to Steve's research? Sure, absolutely. And in fact, the kind of main gist of my discussion was trying to uh, relate uh, what uh, what the paper was doing to that earlier research than Steve and, and others had done back in the day. Um, so this kind of car- conference generally honoring Steve uh, has been focusing on the area where he some of his main contributions, not all of them, but some of them, his main contributions intellectually in the field of finance have been, which is Basically, factor investing. He can be seen as uh, probably a sort of father of uh, factor investing in finance because he came up with this sort of theory, the arbitrage pricing theory, that um, said that, well, we shouldn't be thinking of pricing individual you know, stocks in isolation, and we shouldn't generally just be thinking of, say, you know, the CAPM is about and the market beta is the only source of risk that um, that matters. Well, there may be variety of sources of risk that affect um, various assets, stocks, bonds, and, and so on, but there are probably not that many of them that really matter. Uh, and all the other ones, what does it mean that they don't matter? Well, they, they can be diversified away. In a large enough portfolio, we shouldn't worry about the risk of a particular stock we should worry about risks that kind of compound once we put them together. Uh, stocks that move together are stocks that are kind of risky. Why? Because they move together. It's very hard to diversify away the risk from that uh, co-movement. And from that idea, this sort of fa- factor investing uh, approach was born. Instead of trying to pick uh, individual stocks, we're trying to identify sources of common com- common movement that are rewarded with 
average return or risk premium, basically uh, average returns in excess of uh, the risk free rate that you can earn by uh, you know, emphasizing these uh, these risk exposures. So uh, value, of course, is one of the, the most famous factors. You, the fact that value stocks on average seem to outperform growth stocks, and of course, you know, in Wisdom Tree, you practice that of, in, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, that is a factor uh, in a sense that value stocks tend to co-move with each other, and they co-move differently from, from, from growth stocks, in fact, oftentimes in the opposite directions. Uh, and that's why value investing in, done systematically is a form of factor investing, and that's kind of, again, going back to this uh, Steve Ross idea. And similarly, similarly for, for momentum, high-momentum stocks, stocks that have done well in the past year, say they tend to move together and they outperform uh, stocks that have done poorly in the, in the last year in the near term. And we can think of it as a factor precisely because of this, uh, this co-movement. Now, the paper that I discussed was trying to link these factors in returns, these sources of uh, excess return that have been identified like value and momentum, or specifically value and momentum, to macroeconomic risk. So the idea is, uh, well, why, why is there this co-movement? Why are some stocks uh, riskier than others in, in co-moving with each other? Well, because they're differently exposed to some uh, underlying macroeconomic climate events. Like, Jeremy, today uh, you mentioned earlier uh, the industrial production, uh, say, numbers or uh, uh, the retail sales. We can think of those as variables that capture uh, kind of macroeconomic activity. Now, different stocks will react differently to these news. Stocks that are very cyclical will tend to not do well. Now, today may be an exception, but uh, they will not do well if industrial production is down. Stocks that are less cyclical will, will, will maybe not react so much. And the idea of this paper is using uh, these macroeconomic factors, specifically industrial production growth, uh, inflation growth-related variables, and variables having to do with the term structure of interest rates and also credit, um, to identify of where the value and momentum come from in the sense of what are the kind of sources of fundamental risk that are uh, rewarded. And investors maybe are afraid of these uh, risk exposures, and which is why uh, those, those risk premiums are available in financial now, markets. Let me just, uh, th- this is great. Let me, let me just back up for some of, just to give some background to, to some of our li- listeners when the CAPM was first developed in the late 50s and 60s, uh, the, 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 the only factor really was beta, was the co-movement sure. with the market. Um, and then it was discovered that value stocks, which are those that are either you know, low to earnings, low price to earnings, low price to book, seem to do better than they should do, according to CAPM. So that's why we def- that's why it was considered value seemed to be a factor. They they seem to outperform in a risk return framework more than would be just predicted on the basis of the co movement with the market, which the very simple cap M would predict. Now, much later, uh, the the concept. In fact, uh, it, it, was it in the last ten years that momentum became a really popular factor, Nick? Who? 
Let me, let me just introduce our guest here. We're talking with Nick Rusinoff, Associate Finance Professor at Wharton. Uh, we've got Professor Siegel on the line. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking about value momentum factors for uh, investing here at the Jacobs Levy Equity Conference in New York uh, at the Wharton Jacobs Levy Center. Nick. Uh, yes. Yeah, so, so, Jeremy, you mentioned uh, that uh, value was established as a factor for maybe last uh, well, 20, 20 years or so, and momentum recently has become... Uh, more established as a factor. Now, it's a, it's a little bit controversial in the academic sense because some people still believe that momentum is just uh, uh, kind of behavioral fads. Uh, you know, people chase trends, and that pushes, uh, pushes uh, prices up beyond where they should be. Or sometimes maybe there's underreaction to news when a company has uh, good news. Uh, it's not fully incorporated into the price immediately. It takes some time, which is why you have kind of momentum or appreciation over time. There's another school of thought that, that thinks that momentum is truly a risk factor in a sense that stocks that have done well recently are for some reason riskier than stocks that have done poorly recently. And that's not a debate that is settled by, by any means. Now, where factor investing is in some sense separate from this debate is that it says that, well, you don't necessarily need a, an active money manager uh, who is getting paid uh, a lot of money potentially for getting these momentum uh, momentum exposures in the sense that if we can train a computer uh, and it doesn't take very much work in theory at least to uh, ex- execute these value and momentum strategies because they're systematic and they're they're kind of exposed to common sources of risk uh, it shouldn't cost that much and that really has pushed the idea of uh, act- active versus passive investing more into this, this separation between alpha and beta, and smart beta has been a term that has been also used to describe factor investing, where basically we can automatize investing in these factors like value, uh, momentum, and uh, maybe some others, profitability. So this is a way uh, to uh, uh, beat the market, so to speak, which, of course, we know the record of active money managers is extremely poor, at doing that, um, and but if we follow certain factor strategies cheaply, and and obviously that's that's a key. Um, uh, at least the history shows that on a risk return basis we can outperform the index. Is that is that summarize the the that's debate, right, Nick? That exactly. So the idea is. Uh, we can outperform sort of the passive beat, uh, buy and hold of uh, of the total equity market index say uh, if we have uh, these factor exposures we tilt towards value we tilt towards momentum maybe we tilt towards uh, quality and at the same time we do not need to hire necessarily an active manager uh, to deliver those tilts because they are by their nature they're systematic and therefore can be done at a fairly fairly low cost, and uh, this is kind of where I think the industry, uh, the industry is going, using the, these factors as a way of delivering uh, cheap sources of outperformance relative to the market portfolio, uh, and leaving out kind of pure stock picking and, and superior use of information uh, 
for, for, for somebody kind of who, who specializes in those particular things. Now, let me ask you on, on value and momentum. You know, there's two things that you, you would think, seem are contradictory. You know, value stocks are stocks that have been going down in price. Um, and we're talking about momentum as the factor is stocks that have been really going up in price. And so they have this negative correlation, which is why when you, you know, if you have to take two things that have positive expected returns, they have this strong negative correlation, you get much better when you combine them together. Your sharp ratios, your risk adjusted returns increase when you combine these negatively correlated positive return expectation assets. What, how do you think about that? I mean, do you think these things really should both work over long periods of time in the future? That's a very good question. And that was a central question uh, in the paper that I discussed because uh, that is kind of the key puzzle, so to speak, in the academic literature at least. Why is it both value and momentum strategies are profitable on average even though they seem to be providing a partial hedge for each other. They're, they're insuring each other. So combining them in a portfolio gives you a high average return with lower risk than if you now, were... There is a dis- little distinction here because the value stocks are those that are low in price, whether they've gone down or not relative to certain fundamentals. But the momentum is, is based on past changes in price. Um, that, now, so they are, you, uh, in, in a way, it's one kind of, am I right, one sort of acting on the, 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 the first derivative and the other is more on a level relative to fundamentals. So they're not exactly yeah. opposite, but, but there is a lot of qualities. Obviously, stocks that have been going up a lot will eventually be high relative to fundamentals, but the process of going up is a little different than being high. Right, absolutely. Now, they, in, in, in practice, once we, especially when we go beyond stocks into other asset classes, as, as, as this paper also did, like currencies and commodities, there's really no sense of uh, absolute. You can come up with, with measures of purchasing power parity, for example, for, for currencies, uh, but for commodities even, that is kind of strange. But for most of these asset classes, it turns out that uh, the asset that has performed well over the last three to five years, for example, will be kind of like growth. So growth stocks, typically, even though we use uh, multiples to identify growth stock, high high price to book or for a high price to earnings or something like that, typically they will be stocks that have done well over the you know, prolonged period of time. And value stocks that have, are stocks that have not done very well, which is why their price is low relative to uh, fundamentals. And this is why there is this negative correlation because over kind of shorter periods of time there will be this overlap that stocks that have been beaten down for a long time they will also have potentially negative momentum recently but if they've been beaten down for a long enough period of time they've become kind of deep value stocks statistically it seems like they're the ones that are going to outperform going forward even though they have negative momentum. Uh, and likewise, stocks that have done really well for the last, say, five, six years, they oftentimes have had good momentum in the past year, but their momentum is sort of running out because they have been kind of over, overvalued, as behavioralists would say, and now the, the, the more uh, uh, Chicago school crowd would, uh, would say, well, they're not overvalued, they've just become less risky, which is why you expect a lower average return on them going forward. Uh, that's again that, that that's that debate, but uh, but uh, generally it seems that um, value is quite strongly related to kind of long-term mean reversion of prices towards their kind of long-run uh, ratio of price to fundamental. So, so Nick, on your on your topic of global macroeconomic risk, explaining these value momentum factors, does that? 
Is that research lens leading people down? Do you think to sort of time the factors right now as we are talking, there was a session on timing factors between factor rotation strategies, and there's a whole line of literature, Bob or not, and Cliff Assess debating whether you can time factors, and, and states today was just presenting their paper that we sort of missed while we're talking right now on, on timing factors. But do you think, you know, do you, is this macro model saying you need to use economic variables to time factors? Is that one of the implications of the research? So, so this paper was mostly just trying to, well, the paper that I discussed was, was about, well, are, are macroeconomic variables driving the variation in value or momentum strategies? Timing is another fascinating and potentially even more treacherous question. As, as you mentioned, there is this kind of ongoing debate between the giants of uh, factor investing like uh, Cliff Asnes and Rob Arnott about whether you can or should uh, time, time these factors. And uh, you might use macroeconomic variables to, to try to do that. Historically, there has not been uh, a tremendous success in doing, in doing that. And I've done some, some research uh, on this myself, for example, can you can you time value uh, uh, value investing? So, are there particular times when when you expect value to do particularly well relative to relative to growth? Well, it's hard. It doesn't seem to be particularly strongly related to the business cycle. For example, on the other hand, if you look at valuation ratios, if you look at the basically the book to market or book to pr- uh, book to price um, a ratio of value stocks. Uh, versus the book-to-market ratio of the growth stocks, as that spread widens, typically you expect higher returns on value over growth going forward. And if it narrows, then you, and a behavioralist would say, well, maybe value and growth are more, more uh, fairly priced relative to each other, and you don't necessarily expect a particular outperformance going forward. Uh, but uh, that is still an ongoing debate, as I said. Uh, there, there, there's a lot of discussion in this, and it's not something that one should, uh, you know, don't, don't try that at home. So, Professor Siegel, we, uh, Dick Roll just walked into the room. We're going to be joining by Pr- Professor Roll here uh, just after the break. Nick, thanks for coming on the show here. It's been My pleasure. your second time in just a short amount of time. We're going to have to keep having you back. I'm always enjoying it. Thank you very much. All right, stay tuned, everybody. After a short break, we'll be talking with Dick Roll, the Linda Professor of Finance at Caltech. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside my co-host, Wharton, Science Professor Jeremy Siegel. We're honored to welcome our second guest, Richard Roll, who's the Lind Institute Professor of Finance at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, he's going to have some remarks here at the conference on at the Jacobs Levy Center for Quantitative Financial Innovation. There's a prize being given posthumously to the late Stephen Ross. Richard, thanks for coming to our show here today. My pleasure. Uh, Professor Siegel, I know you've yes. looked at the, the research from Ross and Roll, and, and the, the yeah. sort of Chen Ross and Roll papers are being talked about here. They've done a lot of work together. Uh, maybe you could sort of lead off yeah. our, our And I, as I question. mentioned at the top of the show, and I came to Wharton in '76, and, and Steve was a, you know, was a star, and uh, you know, I learned so much from him, um, and uh, you know, it was it was very you know shocking, of course, this the spring to. To learn of his, his sudden passing, um, I had just seen him he had come visiting Wharton uh, a year ago, and I know Richard. Of course, um, you had known Steve so well for 20 years. Am I correct? You two had a uh, asset management firm, um, Roland Ross, um, together. Um, uh, I mean, do you have any 
you know, a few thoughts you'd just like to share with us about, you know, your long and productive association with Steve. Well, sure. You're, you're wrong about one thing, though, Jeremy. I knew Steve for more than 40 years. No, oh, we ran Roland Ross Asset Management for 20 years, which is an, investment, an equity investment management firm uh, using his research and the mm. research that I did uh, with him, which was, as you know, was published uh, earlier than in, in the 1970s and early 1980s. And then we started Roland Ross somewhat after that. Um, its headquarters happened to be in uh, Pennsylvania in Bluebell, okay. uh, where our third partner, uh, we set up an office there where our junior partner uh, ran some of the business. And so Steve and I, I was on the West Coast. He was up in uh, New England at that time. And then Alan Juhas, our third partner, was in Bluebell. Um, so 20 years, uh, we managed equity money according to uh, the arbitrage pricing theory, which... Uh, is a multi-factor model that we're discussing at this conference today. In fact, it's the whole topic today of everything. So, uh. Yes, and we want to, I, want, I wanted to probe your mind about uh, the evolution of that. Um, uh, you, know, you know, first it was beta, of course, and a simple CAPM. Uh, then, you know, it, it sort of was a small stock and the value stock, uh, you know, approach and with FOM and French popularized. And now I don't know if you'd call it a little a literal explosion of factors, um, but certainly more have been added. Uh, liquidity, momentum. Uh, we were talking and Nick Rusinell just before your. I mean, what what is your feeling about the the evolution of this? Um, do you well, think it's well, moving in the uh, right I mean, direction, or where do you think it it should be moving now? Uh, well, I don't necessarily think it's moving where it should be. Uh, you're right about one thing, though. There's been an explosion of factors. Uh, when Steve and I first started working on this, we thought that there would be a limited number of pervasive uh, systematic factors. In fact, we had a, a paper we published in the Journal of Finance, I think, in 1980. Can it be 37 years ago? I guess it is, uh, mm -hmm. where we said there were five factors that we could figure out were pervasive in, in um, U.S. equity returns. Uh, and by the way, the, uh, those, those five factors that we published in that paper, as you know, Fama and French published a paper three years ago that discovered a five-factor return. <laughs> Did they cite our paper? No. But, uh, that's, a, that's the way things go. So, the, well, what are the differences between your five-factor paper and their five-factor paper? Well, we had the same number. Our purpose was to figure out how many there were. Okay. And they yeah. were trying to identify which ones they were. But as you know, Jeremy, the number of factors has proliferated to such an extent. Um, Cam Harvey published a paper last year where he went back and did a survey of the academic literature and... Uh, documented how many factors, different factors that people had uh, suggested and tried to test, and he came up with 318 factors. <laughs> now, hopefully that's not, there really, aren't, there really aren't 300 and some pervasive systematic factors in the equity markets, because if there were, I think, you know, we'd be in deep trouble for the next hundred years. But um, uh, some of those factors, of course, 
do not stand up under close scrutiny. They're not really pervasive risk factors. Some of them are characteristics. Some of them are anomalies. Some of them are diversifiable factors and therefore not really factors that have risk premiums associated with them. So the, the, the business now that we have to engage in is to figure out, one, how do we, when somebody suggests another factor, what kind of test do we put that uh, to in order to categorize it in the appropriate bucket? Is it really a risk factor? Is it a diversifiable one? Is it an anomaly? Is it something associated with the betas and some unknown factor? And, um, you know, which, hopefully... Which ones do you think are, are most in, important? Or, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't recall your original five, but uh, I don't know whether you've retained all of them or changed some of them, but um, which ones do you think are still very operative in, in, let's say, the markets, particularly the equity markets? Well, the recent, uh, you know, recent papers that, that I've been working on, I think there are a couple of three that are statistically significant or, and are pervasive and have been around for a while. Momentum is one. Um, I think the value factor is another one. Um, and then I don't know beyond that, uh, except the market, the market factor, of course, the market Itself, beta, if you think, beta. yeah, the beta on the market. That's uh, there's some Palmer controversy. Wrote a paper, the, the beta is dead. Is it? Is it? Well, it's, it was survive. dead, but it's, it's had a miraculous resurrection uh, in the most recent um, empirical work. I think. Um, okay. Uh, so I, you know, I don't think it's I don't think it's completely gone. Um, you know, as you as you probably know, it, it Measuring beta really depends on defining what the market index is against which you're going to measure beta. And you can get a lot of different answers depending on which index you consider as the aggregate market index. Um, and if you use uh, the one that's most comprehensive, I think the recent evidence is that it, it does matter. Uh, in terms and when you say of comprehensive, are you talking about like versus all assets or Yeah, I'm talking equity? about combining. No, I'm talking about combining... Uh, equities, fixed income, real estate, uh, and even some of the other things, such minor things such as uh, commodities and, and exchange rates. You know, the, the aggregate, the aggregate um, you know, extends beyond just equities. Mm-hmm. But, but on the other hand, I would say that, that, that it's very clear that the most important factor for equities is different than the most important factor for, let's say, fixed income. If you look at big diversified fixed income portfolios and you look at big diversified equity-only portfolios, the correlation is low between those two portfolios, even though they're very well diversified. And what that suggests is there's at least two really big and different factors in the equity and the fixed income markets. and, you know, I think we have some clue as to what they are in fixed income. Uh, and there's a general market factor in equity, you know, related to the general state of the economy that's not so important for bonds. On the other hand, inflation and, and the term structure are, are really important for bonds and not so important for equity. So um, when you look at those two asset classes combined, you get a good idea that you, you have multiple factors driving factors. returns doesn't mean you that equities are not yeah, somewhat yeah. susceptible to fixed income factors or vice versa, but uh, the bulk of those, uh, what's driving those two asset classes is different. You, you mentioned
mentioned momentum. Isn't that a rather recent one? Um, at least I don't know. Did you have that in some of your original work? Because um, no. I think of that as uh, relatively new, certainly relative to the other factors that many have considered. Yeah, and I think and I think there's a good reason to suspect that it may not be a permanent factor, because the and the reason for that is is it seems to be more behaviorally driven. Uh, you know, you're talking about a factor that people can easily calculate on their own. It depends on the recent movement in uh, in the market uh, in individual stocks over the last uh, six months or so, mm-hmm. um, and the fact that that leads to a higher return in the future seems like a seems like it ought to be an arbitrage opportunity in a way. So I I don't know whether that's going to persist uh, much longer. But it is it is relatively new compared to let's say value or size and. Uh, I remember it was, it was actually a Dick Saylor, DeBonton Saylor, and others that, that pointed out years ago on you know based on behavioral, you yeah. know the three to they they were one of the first to talk about three to five year winners as as continuing to be winners relative to other factors but you're you're perfectly right it was sort of grounded in a behavioral uh framework rather than in a risk framework that's correct let me uh, just reintroduce our guest here we're talking with professor richard roll from the uh from california institute of um Am I getting that score right from Caltech, right? Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> Professor Roll, so it's interesting, your background on, on sort of the asset management side. And when, when you think about the factors that you were specifically applying at, at Ross and Roll Asset Management, what, were, what would you say you were focused on in, those, in that factor research? And, and, you know, you're now thinking about momentum and value, but what were you guys focusing on back then for people who aren't familiar with your firm? Well, we, um, I don't know if you've been listening to the talks today, but we, we wrote a paper and it was published in 1986, Chen, and Ross, which uh, was the first paper to look at macroeconomic variables as factors. And we had uh, unexpected changes in GDP, we had unexpected inflation, we had changes in expected inflation, we had the term structure, unexpected changes in the slope of the term structure, and in um, credit spreads, uh, which we thought was related to investor confidence. So those are the kind, it was based on a macroeconomic idea that there are underlying macroeconomic factors that really are under all these other factors that people are, are, are using. And, you know, that, the, the sense of that is based on just economic reasoning. Yeah. You know, we think, you know, if the, if the whole market goes up unexpectedly, that's good news for some stocks. It's better news for some stocks and others and so on. So there's a beta which translates the unexpected changes in GDP to the different responses of individual assets. So what we did then in Roland Ross is we tried to estimate those betas for each and every one of those macro factors and design a portfolio that had a specific exposure to each one that the clients wanted. Let's say you had a client that didn't want to have any risk of inflation in their portfolio. Well, we could, have, we could do that. We could fix up the portfolio so it yeah. had no volatility at all when, when inflation was changes, or, or for any of the other factors for that. And then that so, was based on, for instance, suppose they felt their other wealth or their personal income or somehow was related to inflation. Sure. They wanted to neutralize it and not also hold that risk in their equity portfolio. 
That, that's correct. And so it, 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 kind of, it kind of helped each individual client decide what kind of equity portfolio is most suitable for them given the other things that they were exposed to. So if you were, and we could go beyond that too, we could look at, let's say, oil prices as a factor. And uh, if somebody was in the oil business and they were an executive and they held a, a pension fund that was in oil stocks, you know, they probably didn't want to much exposure to yep. oil factors, right? So we could fix them up with that kind of a portfolio. Is, right. is that kind of customization, customization something you still think is happening there today? Do you think people need more of that? Well, I think, I think there's not enough of it, to tell you the truth, because, you know, when you think about the individuals who are, would benefit from that, let's say retail investors whose main asset is their house, you know, and their house has a certain volatility because housing prices change quite a bit too, right? So you don't want you don't want to have a equity portfolio for those people that's also exposed to real estate, yeah. right? and that that's the kind of idea. I mean, it's it, it's endemic. You know, when you think about anybody that's got a diversified portfolio, anybody, if their if their portfolio is diversified, they're exposed to factors. They may not know which ones. And most people don't know which ones. But once you've, once you've got diversification, those factors explain 95% of the volatility of every single diversified portfolio. So knowing how you're allocated across those factors tells you everything about your portfolio. You know, it's interesting you should mention that because, as you know, just last year S&P added REITs as their 11th uh, sector. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you're, you're sort of saying, hey, if your other main asset is your house, maybe you should think twice about uh, that, ha- having that sector. Well, in fact, you want to go short buried, that if you could. It be buried in the financials and yeah. then broke it out as a separate one. So I think that was very useful because now you can more easily directly, you know, hedge it uh, uh, yeah. and identify. I, I know that um, Case and Schiller tried to start futures markets in real estate. Uh, did not succeed. Th- they not. They weren't very successful in that. I'm not quite sure why, because it seems to me that would be a highly useful set of futures contracts for most people to to have. But yeah, I mean, again, to hedging, and and they did it in local mar. Not only they were trying to do a national, did local markets. Uh, yeah, they the had. They, they tried to do it. They started yeah. those indices, and I I just think that the traders just they. I don't know if they liked something that. That you know was once a month that came out or, uh, and settled into, and it was subject to averaging, and um, uh, it just never never got a following. Obviously, you couldn't form the underlying, also the arbitrage against it. Although that is not necessarily the death knell for a, for a futures contract, but I think that there were there were a number of problems. The same thing. Remember when they started inflation futures? Um, yeah, the same they died. Time, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, although tips are pretty successful and you can form your own, you know, through the nominal and the, and the tips bonds, yet the futures market for that just didn't, didn't survive independently. Yeah, it is something of a puzzle why futures markets that would be highly useful don't, don't get started. I'm, I guess maybe it has to do with the underlying ability of the traders to hedge their futures positions, but I'm not mm-hmm. really sure about that. I mean, you know, Bob, as you know, Bob Shore and I, and I think it was you who took us on a little plane trip, it must have been 25 years ago, um, uh, down in Southern California, we went to your 
uh, farm area, and I think Bob and I were in your plane. You were a skilled pilot. Um, yeah, I, I, t- I took you for a ride up to up to Ohio, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I remember we went fishing in my pond. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> and Schiller had never caught a fish, and yeah. I saw a bass. I saw a bass about three feet off the shore, and I said, "Throw your lure right in there, Bob." And that bass grabbed it, and he was so excited. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. So you know, talking about you know those those you know Bob has been talking about GDP futures and starting government starting securities that would be denominated in GDP and you know he's he's been thinking about risk hedging for years and years and years and uh it's it is puzzling you know that that those markets have not not caught on um um where do you think where where do you think the future lies is is active management dead is it all going to just devolve to these factors in the cheapest way, maybe by ETFs or however it's done. I mean, wh- yeah, Professor, wh- so you didn't what get to hear. Uh, I saw Professor Earl make a comment that Vanguard's the answer to everything. So he commented <laughs> yeah. on one of the panels that Vanguard, you just supply it all. <laughs> well, you know that's <laughs> they do. They already have an, a, a full panoply of funds that span every factor you could possibly think of. If you can, if you couldn't manage your factor exposure with Vanguard's. Uh, platform you know, you know you you don't have a, a prayer of doing it any other way and they and they do it very cheaply and they allow you to switch from one fund to the other free you know mm-hmm. i mean if you were going to do if you were going to design a platform to do factor investing you couldn't think of a better one than vanguard really i told the guy from vanguard here i said you know he was saying well our investors don't really know what they're doing about factor and i said no wait a minute you know, they may know very well. You, you just don't know what, they, what they're thinking. You know, in mm-hmm. the wisdom of crowds, you know, on aggregate, when all those Vanguard investors together, they probably do a pretty darn good job of it. <laughs> well, I, yeah. mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the gain in assets through either passive, well, I would call it passive management is, is exploding. What, what do you think? I mean, I, I'm, I'm one of those, and I, most of my, I think my academic friends agree that these people cry there's too much passive, too much indexing, I think is pretty much nonsense. Uh, as long as active managers continue to underperform after expenses, one can't say there's too much passive management. But do you have, uh, do you have a, how do you feel do you have on a sense that of how much, how much is too much? Is it 70? Like, maybe there's an estimate today 35, 40% of the mar- U.S. markets index. I don't know, that may be a below estimate. But do you think if you get to 70, 80%, that's too much at some point? I, well, I, you know, there, it can't be 100% because then no. nobody would do security analysis yeah. and, you know, every price would be just a random number. So it can't be 100%. So there's some, there is some level that's optimal. But uh, it isn't, it's it's expensive it yet, to do, do security think, analysis. I don't think so. we have because, yeah. uh, you know, the recent performance of active managers hasn't, hasn't been any better than it's historical. Now, we may not have a long enough time period, but... Well, that, um, that that suggests that there's not enough passive. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. The yeah. rush into into mm-hmm. into passive. Uh, and do do you see a? I mean, the growth of a factor. Um, I mean, everyone's trying to say we can beat you know the average and. Uh, and, and, and moved by these factors, do you think that that has a long way to run, or, or what direction do you think that's going to go in? 
Well, if, if, if there's an active manager that can time the factors, then I think they can add value. But, you know, I don't, I don't see that active management can add value just by deciding to reallocate from one factor to another unless they can forecast or time the factors themselves. Uh, you know, as I said before, you know, if you've, if you've diversified already, your portfolio is driven by the factors. You may not know which ones, but you've already got an allocation to factors. And the only question then is that you can change that allocation in such a way to predict which factor is going to do better. That's what, that's what asset management is going to be in the future, I think. And you're, you, 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 I, your statement on momentum going back to that, you, I, I, at first you said you identified as a factor, and then you sort of threw a little bit of doubt about whether it is, it is real or not. Um, what? No, I, no, what I said, Jeremy, is that it is associated over the last few years, at least, with a risk premium. That is, if you're exposed to the, mm. if you have a beta on momentum, that's none, not equal to the market's bait on momentum, you do better. But what I said is that I'm not sure how long that's going to last because momentum itself seems to be like a behavioral factor yeah. since you're just predicting that the same stocks will continue going in the same direction. Right? And everybody should be able to get that down. Yeah, as you get that down. So, so why that has a risk premium I think is kind of a puzzle. But I think it, empirically it has demonstrated that it does have one over the last few years. Professor, it's uh, down to our minute, last minute 15. Any final thoughts as we've had a great conversation with both Nick Rusanoff and here, Richard Roll? Uh, no, I mean, I'm not, I, I think, uh, you know, factor analysis, factor analysis and understanding historically what has done better, um, I mean, that, that's still, I think, the way we think about uh, equity management and I think what you know what I think Richard and and Steve had done they were pioneers you were you were you were really pioneers in what has become a much more active uh, and competitive field so uh, I think that the award to Steve is is certainly certainly well deserved and, and your research with with him I think is certainly going to be cited for many years and Professor Roll, thank you for spending the time with his, us here at the conference. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Uh, you can follow us at our Twitter handle, at BizRadio111. I'd like to thank our on-site producer, Emily Anton, our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno in the studio, Patty Hall, our always producer. Uh, you can always follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Again, you've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM 111. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.